All right, so um, welcome to our next session of the, of the Sutta study. Uh, I wanted to start actually with a little um, kind of uh, overview of starting to think about how we approach texts now that we're starting to get our feet wet and um, kind of get into that a little bit more. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about today was the lens that we use when we read a text. We always have some kind of lens uh, and there's many, many different options. And the, the, I just wanted to be a little bit more explicit about that so that it's not so unseen. Uh, what we do in this class is pretty much a, what I would call a, a practice-oriented lens. So we look at the text with an eye toward you know, how can this further my path in some way, or how does this indicate a way to practice or a way to understand, to develop wisdom more fully. So it has a sense of these texts are part of a path to liberation, which is of course how I framed it in by titling this in this very life with the referral to, um, to that phrase. But, you know, there are other ways to read these ancient texts. They come to us through 2,500, well, 2,000 years of history, and we can read them in other ways. You know, we can read them with a historical cultural lens or a literary lens or linguistic. We want to learn the Pali or comparative religion or philosophical or devotional. Um, there are people who worship these texts. So, there are many different approaches, and it's not that we need to decide uh, which one is the best or the most valid or the most relevant um, for our modern world or something. It's just that it's good that that not be unconscious when we're reading the text. So, um, and it's not that you need to pick only one of those. Like for example, there are times when in order to use the text for practice, you know, for, a, for a liberative aim, we would want to know something about the cultural context in which it was written or something about mm. the, uh, the language that was being used. We've had some interesting poly questions so far. You don't need to know all these other things. Um, uh, even a, a Sutta study course doesn't uh, require those other kinds of knowledge. Um, but I just wanna um, help us be more aware of uh, which kinds of knowledge we're bringing in at a given time. Does that make some sense? It's not meant to be anything complicated. It's just to, um, yeah, to frame things a little bit. And the, having said that, it's, it, there will be a little bit of cultural context to, to understand uh, the setting of the sutta that we're looking at, um, which is AN5193. I hope you found it. The Sujato text is the only one that's online. I have that in another window on my browser, but I also am referring here to the Bhikkhu Bodhi version. They're not terribly different, but there are a couple, um, couple words that they translate differently. Um, so first of all, I didn't really say this, I didn't really advertise this last time, but uh, did anyone memorize anything? <laughs> you might have, having read the text, you might uh, consider the relevance of that. <laughs> Yes, no, no. Okay, for next week then, um, especially now that we know how to be able to remember <laughs> these, uh, these teachings. So um, I'll just say a little bit at the beginning and then we'll do our usual reading and talking. Uh, 
So this text is called With Sangharava. That's how it's pronounced because that long A will get the emphasis with Sangharava. And he's a Brahmin, uh, which is uh, one of the castes in ancient India. I don't know that the caste system was fully evolved at this time, but you were pretty much where you were born was where you were going to stay. And there's some interesting tension in the Buddhist teachings between Brahmins and uh, in Pali we'd say Katyas, the warrior class. Um, the Brahmins were the hereditary priest class and the keepers of the Vedic knowledge and so forth. And they were very much in the mainstream society, whereas people like the Buddha, who were uh, ascetics, uh, left society, essentially. They checked out of that whole system, and there were a bunch of them. And there were also the Jains and various other kinds, and there's interactions of the Buddha with those folks who were outside of the main society. But there's quite a lot of him interacting with Brahmins um, mm -hmm. once he got back into the world, because he didn't forget, you know, his he was born into the, uh, the high uh, Katya class and was able to interact with them well. You know, he had uh, good manners, good speech. He had been trained in all kinds of government and war and other things. Um, so he had a lot of skills. So he was able to interact with them. Um, but they, their practice was very different from his. They had this oral tradition that was based on a long, um, just a long lineage of people who had been repeating the same texts for a while and doing the same rituals. It was based on a lot of rituals. And the Buddha questioned very much whether this was a proper path to freedom, um, having had different experience in his practice. So um, all of this is background to Sangharava coming, he was a Brahmin, and he comes and he asks him about this, this word that's translated as hymns. Um, you know, why is it that certain hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those have been that have been recited, and then the inverse. And I just want to point out that in the Pali, the word for hymn, I thought it was a strange word because we don't usually see hymns in Buddhist texts. Um, so that word in Pali is manta, which in Sanskrit would be mantra. And so these are their uh, ritual um, chanting sayings that they go through that are meant to evoke and invoke certain things. Um, and so he, he's very innocently, Sangharva is asking him about what he knows, his oral tradition. And uh, the Buddha takes the opportunity, as he often does, to, he doesn't say, well, it's because you have this, you know, lousy system that I don't believe in, and here's why. He actually says, he answers the question, but he slips in a teaching on the five hindrances and how they operate in the mind. Because, you know, after all, you know, memorizing things is the same, whether you're a Brahmin or a warrior caste. So uh, that's kind of the setting, is that the Buddha is taking this question and doing a little Aikido move and putting in one of his teachings, um, which you'll see a lot in the, in the Buddhist texts. Okay, so um, would somebody like to start with the paragraph that starts with Master Gotama? Who would like to read? I will. Okay, thanks, Leanne. Okay. What is the cause, Master Gotama? What is the reason why sometimes even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are not practiced? And why is it that sometimes even hymns that are long practiced spring to mind, let alone those that are practiced? Brahman, yeah. there's a 
Okay. Well, let me just insert one thing. So do you, have you ever had this experience? I think we talked about this when we talked about learning in the last sutta, where you're doing something else and like a teaching will spring to mind. You know, you're, you're in the kitchen and you are washing the dishes and you break a cup. And what springs to mind is sometimes it's an expletive and other times Ajahn Chah's <laughs> phrase comes to mind where he says, this cup is already broken. You know, and, and that comes to mind and you think, oh, well, you know, cups break. So why is it that sometimes you get the expletive and sometimes you get Ajahn Chah? So that's essentially kind of the question being asked here. So continue, please, Leanne. Raman, there's a time when your heart is overcome and mired in sensual desire. And you don't truly understand the escape from sensual desire that has arisen. At that time, you don't truly know or see your own good the good of another, or the good of both. Even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are not practiced. Suppose there was a bowl of water that was mixed with dye, such as red lac, turmeric, indigo, or rose matter. Even a person with good eyesight checking their own reflection wouldn't truly know it or see it. In the same way, when your heart is overcome and mired in sensual desire, even hymns that are long practiced don't mind, spring to mind let alone those that are not practiced. Yeah, thank you. So we have the first um, hindrance listed here. We don't maybe yet know that there are a list of hindrances, but later we're going to get to the other four. And so he, um, he talks about how when the mind has this hindrance in it, it becomes uh, difficult to remember things. Is this your experience? This match? Yeah, and the, the specific phrases that he uses are interesting, right? He says, if one doesn't know the escape from the arisen sensual desire. So what, is, what does that refer to? Letting go? Yeah, if we don't know how to let it go. So escape, yeah, it's in English, I guess sometimes that's a negative word like escapism or something, but in Buddhism, escape is a positive word, um, meaning that you're not caught up in it anymore. So what forms of letting go are there for handling sensual desire? There are multiple kinds, actually. How about when... Um... Um, <laughs> what's the word I want? Sorry. Uh, just con contemplating the um, body as all its um, various like repugnant things. Yeah. Okay. So that's the that's the classic um, countermeasure is to contemplate foulness in the in the body if we're say attracted to a person. It can be a little blunt. Uh, I mean, I think that's a good measure when we're having. Um, serious lust that would be very unwholesome if we acted on it. Um, other kinds of letting go, in, oh, go ahead, Carol. I was just gonna say um, impermanence, just remembering impermanence. Okay, so yeah, a reflection on impermanence. It's not worth getting really attached to this because it won't last for long. It's okay to enjoy it if it's pleasant, but I shouldn't really have a lot of desire and lust for it. So that's a good memory. Um, I think 
uh, we could get simpler, which is that um, mindfulness is an excellent escape. If you're mindful, even though the desire doesn't go away, you have escaped from its grip by knowing that it's there. Uh, it's the very simplest kind of freedom. And you know, um, so we could just simply be mindful. Um, if we're in meditation, we can suppress uh, the hindrances through concentration. They're completely gone for the time that we're concentrated. Um, so some of what you guys have mentioned are, are wisdom approaches, essentially, of applying some form of wisdom so that that um, connection to the hindrance, the obsession with the hindrance is cut. Um, there's uh, other kinds of wisdom in that uh, don't require something explicit. You know, you, you just actually see that sort of the entanglement of the hindrance starting to happen and wisdom just cuts it. Um, and it's a very simple process. You don't even have to have words there. This is when the mind is quite sharp at that moment. So uh, it's not that one of them is, you know, better or you, you need to get to the one that sounds the, the deepest. It's just there's lots of options for escaping from these things. Uh, Jill, you had a comment also. Yeah, just uh, another way. This requires mindfulness, but to also recognize the sensory reaction that it has. There's usually, a, in me anyway, there's like a, seems like a reaching toward, but mm -hmm. it's just a, it's a visceral, it's a visceral reaction to just recognize that and just let it be there. Just, you know, uh, observe it or feel it. And then you can notice, you know, the lessening of the grip. Yeah. So that's a mindfulness of the body kind of approach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Sensual desire has a kind of a tumbling forward kind of feeling to it. Um, and it's about that moment where your center of balance goes over your feet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yes. so you're, you know, um, yeah. So these are all options. So essentially this text says quite simply with such a concise phrase, you know, if we have this hindrance in the mind and we're not able at that moment to escape from it, then we are, what's the word, overcome and mired in. And the Bhikkhu Bodhi text has a nice little um, alliterative phrase. It says, obsessed and oppressed by, by this hindrance. Um, and then there's another interesting phrase after that about um, one's own good. One does not see as it really is one's own good, the good of another or the good of both. What does that call to mind? Jill. I think your mind, well, first of all, I just wanted to point out that he, uh, that um, Sujato says heart and oh, Bhikkhu yes. Bodhi says mind. Says mind, yeah. Yeah. It's chitta, yeah. For me, yes, chitta, but I actually thought heart gave it a whole different twist and I wasn't sure that I thought that was as direct somehow as calling it mind. Um, uh, so, uh, I think what it said to me, this phrase that you just uh, answered, is that you, um, you can't see the good in you and someone else because your mind is really obstructed. It's obstructed through sensual lust or through, and then he describes it as looking in the bowl with all these beautiful colors. So you're just so entranced with that, that you can't see anything more than that. Yeah. Anything more than that. Yeah. 
So you've brought in the image, which is great. That's kind of the main focus of this sutta. I was dragging us through these early words, which are repeated, <laughs> and then we'll get onto these images. Um, so yeah, the, the sense that, um, I mean, what I see here is that it's, he's very sort of subtly slipped in that uh, not only is the discerning faculty of the mind interrupted, which is what the hindrances are usually said to interrupt, concentration, yes, but also wisdom. They are things that, that get us in, in the way of wisdom. So that's the part about seeing clearly. But then this part about one's own good, the good of another, and the good of both, that's a classic phrase describing the quality of metta. Um, but we could substitute compassion and say that what we have here is that wisdom and compassion are both interfered with by the hindrances, um, kind of subtly slipped in. There isn't really any further focus on the heart qualities in this, except that Sujato uses heart the whole time for, for Chitta. Yeah, and so um, so we're in big trouble if we're overcome by these things. We can't use wisdom, we can't use compassion, <laughs> you know, it's like, these are a problem. And the, the problem is just as, uh, as Jill started to uh, point us toward, let's go on then to these lovely images. So this one has this image of water that's dyed, you know, um, and the problem with the water being dyed is that you can't see your image clearly or accurately. So it goes back to the lack of wisdom, uh, the lack of ability to see clearly. Um, we have a sort of a similar modern version of this, right, with rose-colored lenses. Um, this is a similar idea, I think, my interpretation um, of, you know, just like you have this shade over what you're seeing and everything looks great and, and so you buy the thing and then you have you know purchaser's remorse buyer's remorse is that what it's called when you get home and you realize by the before you even get home you realize you didn't need what you bought so um what else uh, speaks to you in this uh, bowl of water does anyone have other comments about what that evoked to think of a colored bowl of water in which you can't see your image clearly. Yeah. I don't mean to dominate, but this is my interest. I wanted to know, this was some time ago, what lack was. And um, he calls it rose uh, matter here, but it's not that way in the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation. But lack, it's so interesting if anybody likes this kind of thing, it refers to a specific insect that feeds on trees in uh, India and Thailand, and it uh, lays its eggs and, 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 and eats the sap of these trees. And in that process, it changes that sap chemically and it becomes red and the, that becomes like a hard shell that covers its eggs that it lays and it also kills it in the sap. And actually, shellac is made from this. So it's shellac, okay. and lac is the color, and it's kind of a, a deep red. And the other interesting thing to me was rose matter. You'll have to excuse me, this is mine. No, please, um, this is great. Rose matter, uh, the plant itself is related to a plant that we grow here in the mountains. It's, an, it's a native plant called bedstraw, sticky bedstraw. And so this is a kind of bed straw, and it just has a very funny little yellow flower, but it's the roots that are really thick and ropey 
that dye things, they've used it for dye for centuries and centuries, one of the first things that was used for dye. And it, it has a variety of colors it can make, but mostly it's red. Okay, yeah, so, so we have two red ones, and then there's the turmeric, which we know, yeah. even in the modern world, how deeply yellow that is, and you can get everything stained. <laughs> um, yes, everything is stained. Blue, they have some kind of blue dye indigo. also. They call it here. Indigo. And in this, um, uh, looking for how they describe the colors of the Bikubodian. Black, turmeric, blue dye. They don't say indigo, so. Yeah. So these were things that would be very familiar. These words yes. would be very familiar at the time. Uh, Evie. So this is, a, this is really more a question than anything. It was just something that struck me, and I'm curious what other people think. Because to me, like, all these are, um, they're all colors. Like, they're all, at least in my associations, are kind of positive. And like, I mean, even just your, what you just said about rose-colored glasses, yet like they're all positive things but like they're talking about i guess if i would have thought that the teaching would have been something about you know looking into muddy water or something you know like there's that we'll whole other that <laughs> metals right and that then you can see clearly but i mean and maybe this is color because it's like this an, that's beautiful that's not you or not the real you or not the real other people or everything but anyway i'm just it really struck me because if i had been making up what he would have said it wouldn't have been pretty colors in this context you know what i mean yeah yeah so uh, there may be something to that in that uh sensual desire is one that people often object to uh as uh, you know not to not as hindering as others it does bring to mind the uh there is a teaching that says um, what does it say? Desire is less blamable, but harder to remove. Ill will is more blamable, but easier to remove. And delusion is very blamable and very difficult to remove. <laughs> so there, it's understood that, um, and there are other teachings, you know, people say that Buddhism is so anti-desire, especially Theravada Buddhism. It's all about suppression of desire and they don't think you should have any desires. And it doesn't ever actually say that. Um, it's that, um, like the Buddha, there are other texts where uh, the Buddha points out that things that are beautiful or pleasurable um, or enjoyable uh, have a certain amount of pleasure associated with them. And that's normal and he acknowledges that. Uh, the problem is that it's limited and it's also unstable as carol said it's you know it's impermanent uh, but he doesn't ever say that you know uh enjoying that pleasure or feeling that pleasure is somehow wrong it's a natural result of things that are pleasant so i think what we're looking at here i mean the, the, this translation as lust is you know it's not my favorite translation um because it sort of implies sexual, and I think it's broader, meant to be broader than that. Um, but the the strength of the word lust is meant to be that those cases where we're really obsessed with something. Um, and people who are obsessed with getting something 
can do a lot of damage in the world. Uh, this is, you know, um, yeah, of having more, or having that particular thing. I mean, this can be a cause of killing people. So um, there is, it's also acknowledged that when this goes too far, it really is a grip on the heart. And, you know, even if it's not at that level, when you're meditating, if you're thinking about the donut for the whole hour, it's kind of embarrassing at best. So, um, you know, maybe the image is deliberately not so, something where you bump up against a little bit and say, well, I don't know if that's so bad, but he's just saying there's a distortion there. You know, there's a distortion. You're not seeing the whole thing. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Bruce. Or maybe you're just distracted by the beautiful water. Yeah, I mean, so that's pretty. Possible too. Yeah, it's pretty. Um, you know, the I, I'm surprised that um, obsessed isn't. Uh, you don't hear more of that word, in, you know, in the teachings, or at least that that is an evoke. Because to me, I think it certainly describes the hindrances for me. Or, or, or if if you the other thing is, of course, to use you know the, the word tangha which is, uh, I mean, that's this thirst. It's, so it's a mat to me, it's a matter of degree. Yeah. It's, it's, I think that's really where the hook is. The hook is when you, you're obsessed and you just can't shake it. We uh, know that feeling, don't we? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, we all know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah, you make a good point. I, um, I've you know, reflected on desire and watched it in my own mind because you know, we all have all these tendencies and, you know, there is this definitely tanha, kind of a thirsting, obsessional desire. And then there are these shades. Like if you get back far enough toward the more neutral end, you get things like aspiration. Aspiration is nice. It's a desire for something beautiful or wholesome or to develop ourselves. And at the very, very fine end of the scale, you have intention. Wise intention is the second step of the Noble Eightfold Path. But an intention is a desire. It's a, a, a leaning towards something uh, right before you do it. And so, and, you know, at the very, very last moment before awakening, intention has to fall away. But before that, you better have intentions. <laughs> and, you know, we can direct them to be better or worse. But I think that part of the brilliance of the Buddha's teachings is that he takes movements of the mind that happen anyway, namely the movement toward and the movement away, um, neither of which is necessary for an awakened person, but we all, those of us who aren't, have these movements, and he, he channels them, he uses those well. You know, so he says, yeah, you should have good intentions. In fact, that's the second step of the path, start modifying what you want to be good things. And what about movements away? Well, renunciation, wonderful, wonderful quality on the Buddhist path. Hatred, not so good. So he also has, you know, some wise movements away, sense restraint, um, those sorts of things. So he uses the things that are already present in the mind, but he organizes them better than they're organized in the untrained mind, which is mostly about getting stuff for me and avoiding pain for me. Okay, so with that, maybe we can go on to ill will, <laughs> the movement away, uh, another hindrance. Would somebody, uh, read the one about ill will. Evie. 
Furthermore, when your heart is overcome and mired in ill will, even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are, that are not practiced. Suppose there was a bowl of water that was heated by fire, boiling and bubbling. Even a person with good eyesight checking their own reflection wouldn't truly know it or see it. In the same way, when your heart is overcome and mired in ill will, even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are, that are not practiced. Yeah. So here we have a different image. This is for ill will. And so we have this image of boiling water. This one is quite obvious that you can't see the image clearly um, in boiling water, coming and going and bubbling and so forth. Does this uh, feel viscerally like something you can understand related to ill will? I see some nods. Anyone want to comment on that? Heavy, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's sort of a perfect. I mean, I feel like when I'm, you know, like when I have ill will, when I'm angry, whatever, I mean, absolutely, I feel like, like there's this caustic thing, you know, and I mean, like the clarity for me is often when I realize like, this is just causing me pain, like it's not going to change anybody's behavior. It's not gonna, all it's doing is miring me in, and it really does feel like, I mean, when it's bad, it feels caustic and burning and it's hot, right? Burning. No? There's heat and there's this motion yeah. sort of associated, internal motion like this associated with it often can be. Sometimes we have cold anger. Yeah, it's, it's an accurate uh, metaphor, simile, I guess. Um, other comments? I thought I heard someone else. Val? Yeah, I was trying to get my speaker on. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, now I forgot. Oh. I, I, I was not listening to you because I was trying to get my speakers. Oh, I, I, maybe I'm repeating something I already said. I was just going to say, you know, I just substitute the word anger for ill will. And then, of course, it's the heat, heat of an argument, the hotness, the, you know, the redness of anger. It's just, to me, it's just a really close metaphor. Yeah. And at that time, are you likely to have teachings spring to mind? <laughs> not so much. I've had interesting cases where... Um, I got an email that was not what I wanted, something I didn't want. And, you know, I read the first few lines, and I realized, oh, I, you know, this is something that makes me irritated or, oh, I didn't want to, yeah, why did they say that? Or why, why was it this result? And I, I sort of read it through um, and then I go off and, you know, do other things. And I, I come back when the, the initial irritation has calmed down and I read the email again, and of course it still says the same thing, but I often find that uh, there are details in it that I didn't see before. You know, like at the end, they've added a sentence that had a fact in it that I completely did not catch, you know, the first time I read it. Just because that initial kind of shock or bubbling of something blocked me from actually being able to take in what the rest of the message said is such a good lesson uh, that I, you know, it's, it's not that I get angry at my email every day, but uh, it's just such a good lesson that uh, when there's something in, in an email or something that comes in that feels a little bit disturbing in some way, there's some aversion to it. I always remind myself, if I remember later, if I have the, the clarity, that I need to read it again before I respond to it um, to make sure I really uh, read everything that was in it. So I've just found that to be helpful.
oiling does interfere with clarity. Even at a kind of a low level, it's interesting. Okay, so I would like us to get through the um, all the uh, all the hindrance images today. So could somebody read the image for the next hindrance, <laughs> the uh, sloth and torpor? Yeah, oh, Val. I'm, I'm good at sloth and torpor. Okay. <laughs> Furthermore, we, furthermore, when your heart is overcome and mired in dullness and drowsiness. Dullness and drowsiness. Okay, well, did you say something? No, I just, I just said that I had used the classic sloth and torpor, but it does say dullness oh. and drowsiness. Oh, here. I'm just reading off the, yeah. Yeah. Um, even, hymns, even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those are, that are not practiced. Suppose there was a bowl of water overgrown with moss and aquatic plants. Even a person with good eyesight, checking their own reflection, wouldn't truly know it or see it. In the same way, when your heart is overcome and mired in dullness and drowsiness, even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those are, that are not practiced. Yeah, so what's the, uh, what's the image here? the moss and the aquatic plants are, are yeah. full of, I can sort of see this green moving water kind of full of, you know, all this stuff in there. Pond scum. Thick, thick. <laughs> yeah, thick and Yeah, green. this thick layer on the surface of the water. How does this uh, land in terms of our practice? Anybody experience something like this? Yes, I certainly have. And it, um, it's interesting because the moss, the, the green stuff that grows, they grow, it grows in still water very, you know, no movement. And I, that's how I kind of experience it with sloth and torpor. You just kind of slide into nothingness and you're not, yeah. not functional. Kind of <laughs> dull out. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's pleasant, right? <laughs> so yeah. we're, we don't mind kind of slipping away, but there's this, there can be this sense of this kind of film or, you know, covering. It's like, I can't quite see yeah, and then if we try to look in you know, at our reflection of our face, obviously that's not going to work. Other comments on this um, image? Yeah, Kathy. I don't actually have a comment on the image, um, though I found all the images like really appropriate. Um, but um, looking at this, um, version of this one through the central it's got these um ellipses right between a lot of this stuff and is that like so what does that mean is there something missing there in the translation or what's that about it means that um a section that was repeated is repeated from earlier um and so the same uh words appear there and so if there are the ellipses it doesn't mean there was like lost bits of text or anything uh, we we know what was there um, but if you have to look farther up then, and you know, there's a, there'll be a phrase that's repeated um, farther down. The interesting thing is, you know, we, we might think, oh, this is something that modern people put in because, you know, it's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Then they just repeat this and um, this part. But there are actually ellipses in the original uh, polytexts. <laughs> so I guess they were saving banana leaves when they, you know, first wrote them or something. 
but um, you know, this was of course an oral tradition, and so you you get to a certain place, and it's like, oh, and then you repeat the refrain, <laughs> and so um, the person would know. But that's a great question, and there are cases in these. Uh, sometimes in these books, and especially on Sutta Central, I think Sujato does it a little bit more than is in the original, is that he elides things that um, I kind of wish he didn't because they're important. I'm going to actually read us a phrase at the end that got ellipsized out of this one. Um, what is the refrain for this reading? Um, well, what the we don't actually have a refrain. Maybe I used the wrong word. Refrain means a literally repeated section. So like in the Satipatthana Sutta, the insight section is literally, well, it's almost literally the same. It has the particular foundation of mindfulness substituted into it. But here we have a couple refrains. Like we have, when one dwells, I'm sorry, on the Bhikkhu Bodhi version, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by, fill in the blank, <laughs> sensual lust, one of those five, one does not understand as it really is the escape from a risen fill in the blank. On that occasion, one does not know and see as it really is one's own good, the good of others and the good of both. Then even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those have, that have not been so recited. That's the Bhikkhu Bodhi version. So that phrase is exactly the same with each of the five hindrances substituted into those two slots where I said fill in the blank as the first paragraph of each of these five sections. Does that make sense? It does, so but then, it just means that it's like nothing's missing, really. Like it does dot, dot, no, dot. Nothing's missing. Yeah, there's nothing missing there. Right. It's not like we don't know what's there. Dot, dot, dot means we know what it is. It's, you might have to look farther up to remember what it is. And it can be um, a good exercise um, to read them and actually in your mind, go back and put that in or read it out loud and refer back up and put that section in. Try You can try it sometime. You don't have to do it every single time you read. Uh, the reason is partly that um, you, you know, it's oral tradition, so it becomes easier to remember. You'll find each time that you, it's, you know, you don't have to have, keep referring back up. You remember it. But I think that there's something deeper going on. People always just say, oh, it's the oral tradition. Oh, it's the oral tradition. My sense is that the Buddha also repeated things that were important. <laughs> and there are cases where he's repeating again and again this thing to drive it into your mind. Does all this stuff about not remembering the teachings, do you find sometimes that you're a little slow at getting these ideas? I do. Um, our mind has a hard time learning the Buddhist teachings because they go against, you know, our long-standing habits of the way I want to think, the way I want to organize my life about me and you know, all these things. Um, and so, you know, you get used to it over time, but the Buddha keeps saying the same things again and again. He keeps saying, you know, things arise and then they pass, things arise and then they pass. And if you keep saying, oh yeah, 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 that's just delighted because it was an oral tradition, you might not remember, no, I have to keep looking. Things that arise pass away and we forget it. That's why we have an expletive when the cup breaks, because we've forgotten that things that arise pass away. If we really knew that, it's just, there it is, nature's happening. So um, sometimes we need to get these things drilled into our skulls a little bit. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, anything else on this uh, dullness and drowsiness one? Okay, 
So could someone read the image for um, restlessness and remorse? That's what Vicky Brody has. Yeah. Sure. Furthermore, when your heart is overcome and mired in restlessness and remorse, even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are not practiced. Suppose there was a bowl of water stirred by the wind, churning, swirling, and rippling. Even a person with good eyesight checking their own reflection wouldn't truly know it or see it. In the same way, when your heart is overcome and mired in restlessness and remorse, even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are not practiced. Yeah, nice, thank you. So we have water that's churned and rippled and so forth. How does that uh, sound related to restlessness and remorse? Well, I'm very familiar with restlessness and remorse and churning and swirling and rippling just uh, evokes it very nicely. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's movement that is not organized, right? It's this kind of, you know, the wind comes and the water goes this way and that, and, you know, it's, it's, water has a lot of potential to move in a certain direction, and the mind has a lot of potential to focus itself, for instance, into concentration or to see clearly, but if it's got this kind of random motion, that energy is not organized enough for that to happen. That's kind of how I see this, as well as it being quite a visceral image, obviously. Yeah, Bruce. Kim, I, I've always, with this hindrance, I've always um, thought it was somewhat strange that they would put restlessness and remorse under the same, uh, to me, they're very, really different um, qualities. You know, restlessness is, I think, to me, it evokes a body kind of having trouble sitting still. Um, and remorse, although it could be the mind too, a restless mind, but remorse is more uh, a regret that you, something you've done. And it's, I, I'm, I don't know, I have trouble kind of fitting those two into the same cat. To me, they're very different. And yeah, okay. of course, feeling remorse can evoke restlessness. So maybe that's the time. I don't know. It's a good point. Um, Kathy, you look like you had a comment also. Did you want to add to that or respond? Yeah, I originally was um, thinking, why are these two together? And as you know, we were, I was looking at them and stuff, I thought, well, perhaps they're thinking of remorse in the way that you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. And then you can't let the thought go. And it's kind of a restless way that it just keeps going over and over and over and over. And I thought, yep. perhaps that's- <sighs> Why did I do that? Why didn't I do this? Next yeah, I, I too, like, why are these together? Yeah, I think it's that sense of not being able to let something go, not being able to just settle in and be in the present moment. I've sometimes seen this translated as restlessness and anxiety, um, which I don't think is very good because the word uh, does refer more to the past. The Pali is udacha kukucha, I believe. And udacha is about restlessness of body and mind and just kind of a antsy way and the kukucha is about uh, looking into the past and feeling disturbed about that uh, so particularly if you've been violating uh, precepts this will this will be related to that 
But I think in, in any of these, there is a, a range to kind of address your point, Bruce. Maybe maybe the Buddha was trying to kind of group some things together just to make a nice, simpler list. Um, you know, but even within Ill, Ill Will, for example, that could be anything from resentment to sadness. Uh, actually, boredom goes under Ill Will because it's an aversive kind of mind state to hatred and rage. That's a very wide range. Now, depression would go under ill will, as would rage, which have different energies to them, but they're both pushing away. They're both aversive. So I think it's, it's in my mind, especially with these water images, it's kind of grouping what kind of energies are going on in these. I think that was maybe the idea, but I don't know. Maybe, the, maybe we have different associations with these words in English also. I don't know. Okay, and then the last image is for the fifth hindrance of doubt. Who would like to read that one? Yeah, Linda. Furthermore, when your heart is overcome and mired in doubt, even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are not practiced. Suppose there was a bowl of water that was cloudy, murky, muddy, hidden in darkness. Even a person with good eyesight checking their own reflection wouldn't truly know it or see it. In the same way, there's a time when your heart is overcome and mired in doubt and you don't truly understand the escape from doubt that has arisen. At that time, you don't truly know or see your own good the good of another, or the good of both. Even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are not practiced. Yeah, nice. So um, murky, muddy, placed in the dark. How does this sound related to doubt? It's for me. Yeah, so there's a sense of just not knowing or not seeing clearly. Um, doubt is an interesting hindrance, right? Because it has a, some different dimensions. It's not that anytime you have a question or a concern that you have the hindrance of doubt. Oh, that's terrible. I shouldn't be doubting. Uh, yeah, you know, you're very much encouraged to ask questions, um, doubt whether or not you're, uh, the way that you're living now is the way that leads to the greatest happiness. That's the doubt that puts you on the path, actually. So this is referring specifically to, you know, kind of things that keep you from being able to even try out the practice. You know, questions like, I'm sure I won't be able to do this, and, you know, I'm not sure the teacher really knows what they're talking about and who was this buddha guy anyway and you know i think i'm only here tonight because my partner brought me and you know these kinds of things uh, with a mind like that it will be it will be really difficult to um be able to do the meditation instructions and therefore be able to find out for yourself so doubt is considered quite a dangerous hindrance because it can prevent checking whether or not the teachings are actually true, which is, you know, which is what we do on the path. 
Yeah, Abby. Just registered on me that at least in the the one I don't think the one that Linda just read, but the one that um, is online, that the first two. It's like that there was right the reservoir that was heated by that was heated by fire that was mixed with dye and the last three is that's not overgrown with moss not stirred by the wind not or, or and then and then it goes back to that is transparent like it's not consistent with in terms of the um which I just found utterly confusing on this one because it suddenly registered on me that that's describing the opposite of doubt actually Oh, you want to skip to the end um, because there's a section first on why the hymns are not remembered and that has all the images of the um, plants and the ripples and the muddy water and all that. And then there's a whole section on why the hymns are remembered. And okay. that one has all the clear water. It says it's not dyed. It says it's not boiling. It's not overgrown with plants. Um, Okay, sorry, that up. I may have printed, I may have, with my printing problems, I may have left out the whole middle section and then it just registered on me that something was funny. Yeah, so this has, um, I mean, that's the beauty of this sutta. It doesn't just leave you with, you know, murky bowls of water that you can't uh, see your clear image in. It then has a section that's just as long um, with it's done completely in uh, inverse or converse that um, uh, has the opposite of that, which I was hoping to get through. I don't know if we will. Um, let's see. I think there's enough to say on that last section that we probably ought to um, finish this sutta next time. Uh, so we're not rushing, but uh, just to wrap up, um, since we have only a few minutes, the Buddha doesn't uh, leave us with these murky water images, he then, he talks about the absence of these things. So if the water is not dyed, it's therefore pure and clear, and it's easy to look in and see an accurate reflection of your face, to see and accurately what's going on in your mind. And similarly, if you, the water is uh, not boiling, it's therefore still on the surface, um, cool. And again, you can see clearly. So we have uh, an image that is um, on the, in the positive side, it's an image of clear water, which is often an image, by the way, for the wise mind. There's another case, there are other cases where it's, that's a similar um, analogy made. Also a concentrated mind is likened to water in certain ways. But we have an image that's specifically directed toward an absence. Uh, which is interesting in and of itself. That's going to be your contemplation for this uh, week, by the way, is when you're meditating, if it's of interest, of course, this is your choice. Uh, notice if any of these hindrances are present, and if so, you know, maybe the image helps you connect with them or realize that they were there when you weren't sure. But, you know, see if that water image uh, of the particular type of disturbed water uh, makes sense in your own direct experience. And then also consider cases where uh, certain qual those qualities are absent. And what is it like to notice an absence? 
can we notice something that isn't there? So this is a more subtle observation and actually one that's important in Buddhism. So um, how do you see clear water actually? Can you see it? <laughs> yeah, interesting one. So um, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of your experiential exploration this week, if it's of interest. And we'll uh, talk about, we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail next time. Are there any additional comments or questions? Yeah, Kurt. I just noticed in terms of the form that in this fifth hindrance, they didn't uh, um, put the ellipsis in at the end of the paragraph. They oh, that's, included yeah. that sentence. That's typical, is that the first yeah. one is there, the last one is there, and everything in between is elided. It's just a stylistic thing. Yeah, so like when they do the five aggregates, they'll do the whole thing for form, and then they'll elide three times, and then they'll do the whole thing for consciousness at the end. It's just the style, often. Okay, well, um, so I think we're going to finish this one next time, and then um, I'll think of something else for us to uh, go on to, and I'll send it by email. We might do a story, wouldn't that be interesting, one that has some plot to it, um, that's different. So, you know, so far we've, we've been looking at different styles. We looked at, um, the first one was pretty definitional, and yet we still had a quite an interesting discussion about whether that was prescriptive or descriptive. This one, I think the main focus is quite clearly the images, is that the Buddha is trying to evoke uh, visceral experiences um, to help us understand these uh, things that are part of our mind that we might not see clearly otherwise, and to get us to see when the mind is clear. So it has a very practice practical orientation. The part about the Brahmin, you know, I, I made that into something, but it's not a major part of the story, although the Brahmin does end up uh, converting to Buddhism. So we'll talk about that a little bit next time, because that's a stock phrase that you see a lot, so I want to go over that. Um, there are also suttas that are stories that are um, kind of have a, and usually the story ones have, are done in a style that's got something at the beginning and something at the end that's the story and then there's the teaching in the middle it's kind of a sandwich sort of thing and then there are verses and even other types so hopefully we'll do maybe a little sampling of different types of style all right so we're at the time um, unless there are any final comments yeah Kurt. remember to donate to kim thank you thank you kim Yes, thank you, everyone. Uh, have a wonderful week. Have a good long weekend. And uh, be I well. Wanted, I wanted to mention that the ISC Come and Go Retreat begins tonight from 7 That's to right. 9. And 7 then, to 9 tonight, and then all day Saturday and Sunday, and the morning on Monday. Yeah. Thanks. All right. See you there. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Be Thanks. well. Thank you.